1: to go into the nonprofit space, to go into public service. And right now, this industry, one, is not rewarding risk, right? So it doesn't reward innovation. And so when young talent graduate out, you know, they're like, oh, where can I put my talents? Where will my talents be rewarded? And they don't see that within the nonprofit space. Um, and then on top of that, there are so many people who can't access the space because it is so underpaid.
2: We as a society believe it's not right to pay in the nonprofit space because that for some reason that's a sacred area that you have to um, live in a kind of a monk-like existence. And, martyrdom. And not, and it's, it's martyrdom. Martyrdom, yeah. Right. It, the purity of martyrdom, which, which, which I think is such a... a Sad falsehood that really holds a lot of our organizations back. I and mean, if you yeah. are a top graduate and have just killed it, you know through school, you've started some businesses and you've got a great idea. Well, and you're impacting millions of lives. Why, why can't you be paid to do that? Yeah. You know, and why can't we avoid the, the the martyrdom trap that we really harken back to our, our you know, pilgrim roots.
3: back to Yang Speaks. It's your co-host Zach Grauman. Today we're back with the future of and it's the future of philanthropy, the future of giving guys and it's something I'm very passionate about. I used to be a philanthropy advisor. I used to help run a team called Client Philanthropy Solutions. So I used to help some of the wealthiest people in the world give money to charity and I can tell you this, we are terrible at it as a country. It's one of the reasons I joined Andrew's campaigns because our society, the people that were supposed to save us who had all the money and supposedly all the brains were not going to do it. And it's very strange. In this country, we have no problem if you make a lot of money hurting people or hurting others. Like if you make a billion dollars fracking and melting the ozone or creating a drug like an opioid that makes people addicted to it or cars that our lemons or a faulty brake pads or things like that, we'll still make you a billionaire. Hell, we'll put you on the cover of Forbes and various magazines and put you on TV. But if you make a lot of money helping people, we don't like you when you make a lot of money. There are so many records. We fired nonprofit executives for making too much money. We have a really twisted society. So you make a lot of money hurting people. We applaud you. We make a lot of money helping people. We hate that. It's very, very strange. It's one of the reasons our philanthropic, and our nonprofit system is broken. And I want to talk about it today, and I want to talk about where that industry is going because whether we like it or not, philanthropy has to play some form of role in how we piece together our society, specifically our American society. So I've got two guests on today. One is someone who was my boss at UBS. He's someone I learned everything I knew from when it came to strategic philanthropy. We call it strategic giving. His name is Bill Sutton. He has incredible hair if you're watching on YouTube. Um, If not, you're missing out. So if you're listening to Pod, maybe check it out on YouTube. But he's an incredibly smart and thoughtful person and has seen the world from the eyes of a lot of these donors, which is fascinating. And then we have this incredible... Social entrepreneur Amanda Wen is on. She's the founder of Rise. They're an advocacy group, and she has passed more laws than most members of Congress. Um, she has turned activism into actual change and actual policy, um, which I think is where the future is going. And she is a fascinating perspective, being one of the top innovators in the space. Talking about the challenges, talking about the trends, talking about what's new. So tune in, guys. The future of philanthropy here on Yang Speaks. <laughs> All right, everyone, welcome back to the next episode of The Future Of, and today we're talking about the future of giving. Now, full disclosure, this is a personal passion of mine, because I used to work in, before I joined Andrew Yang's campaign, I used to work in client philanthropy services on Wall Street, and my job was to help very wealthy people give money to charity. And my biggest learning, and one of the reasons I joined the campaign, was that the wealthiest people in the world while many of them altruistic and trying to help, are vastly unaware or unable to solve some of our biggest problems. And those of us who are in philanthropy or in social entrepreneurship or in that space, frankly, see that firsthand. And I want to take some time today to bring on some amazing people and talk about what that means 10, 20, 30 years from now, what that's gonna look like. So we've got two awesome guests. The first one is my former boss, but he's a, a basically a legend in the space. His name is Bill Sutton. He's a philanthropy advisor. But this man has—if I think I had some experience talking to the wealthiest people in the world, Bill has had a plethora of that times a hundred and seen the things you've seen, the things you've learned, the things you've taught me. Uh, there's nobody better in terms of understanding this space. So, Bill, I'm happy you're here, man. I'm happy the hair is still flowing as ever. <laughs> it's beautiful. Um,
2: <laughs> it's great to see you. It's great to hear you, buddy. Glad that you're well. And thank, thanks to the kind the kind comments.
3: Of course. And there's a lot of innovators in the space, but this woman is not just an innovator, but an accomplished innovator in that you've taken great ideas and innovations and turned them into real Policy action, tangible results. Amanda Wen, CEO and founder of Rise. Amanda, I'm honored to be in your presence. Thank you for being here, and thank you for taking the
1: time. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for having me.
3: So let's let's start. Let's start with the basics here. Um, the big question I want to ask for both of you is like, what? Give me the lay of the land on how the nonprofit sector is working today. If charity's role is to fill the space between governments and business and, and solving some of our big social challenges. Um, what are we seeing today in the landscape?
2: I think today, I mean, you can't escape um, COVID-19 and you, mm-hmm. you can't escape what's happening, um, what's been happening since then and, and what happened before that, um, as we're talking about uh, Black Lives Matter uh, protest um recent violence uh, and discrimination against minorities um asian american minorities uh, pacific islanders i mean there's so much that's interrelated there you really can't separate that that question zach i think from Mm. well how do we as, as folks who give who are making a difference really examine that and explore that and and i think a number of folks initially maybe weren't sure um but it was tremendous to see just how folks not only keep giving but they they give they're giving more and coming up with incredibly interesting ideas. I mean, from the early days of just buying gift cards from your local restaurant, maybe that's not giving, but it's giving back in, in a way. Or maybe it's it's going and, and you know, buying out uh, a month of supplies. Or maybe it's going out and, and really taking care of the food concerns for local health, I think quick local action really t- took place in the front end. And I think that folks not only are continuing to do that, but are looking beyond that. How how can we help with the planning and potentially helping our state and local governments with vaccine mm. distributions? How can we as givers do that? So for it, it's been such a, a great space for entrepreneurial philanthropists to make a difference, either locally or regionally or even nationally. Um, it's just tremendous how to see those stories it, it just ripple and change. And it's been such a different point of inflection for us as you know for folks who give in this space uh, to really pause and, and, to, and do something new by the way that doesn't mean that everything else that, that these individuals and, and just folks in general give to those needs have not gone away in fact right the, you know they're even, the, the need is even more
3: coronavirus and this pandemic has accelerated a lot of the problems we had so you now imagine the philanthropic space you now have you have all the problems you're trying to solve for from a philanthropic perspective before the pandemic. And then now the pandemic has either made some of those problems worse or a lot of those problems worse, and you have the pandemic caused problems or the pandemic itself has a problem. That's probably a good question for you, Amanda. It's your organization, Rise. Tell us about it. It's not a COVID organization, but I imagine in this pandemic, you've had a new laser focused lens.
1: Yeah, of course. I mean, COVID has shown very clearly that we are as strong as the weakest among us, right? So, you know, philanthropy, your original question was the landscape of philanthropy. Of course, there are these very well-endowed, old, huge nonprofits, right, that have existed and have done really good work. And then we see this rise, especially aided by social media, of Um, activists who are well activating large communities to channel you know their thoughts their opinions and I know that there's a lot of um, stigma is not the right word here but there's this uh, attitude towards what's called um, armchair activists right where you know you can do it from home and but look Words do matter, and because social media has essentially democratized this access of you know network distribution, right? Of of stories of empathy, we're getting you know, different types of uh, new um, new charities growing. Uh, your question though about Rise, Rise is a civil rights accelerator, and it's the first of its kind in the world. I really mean this. We <laughs> did extensive research, um, and. It based itself off of Y Combinator, out of tech accelerators, lowering the barrier to entry right into the market. And that's what RISE does. We incubate civil rights activists by giving them seed funding and then critically teaching them, training them how to pass a law. A lot of that has been in rapid response to COVID, at least for this year.
3: So Bill, and we were talking, when we, when we were working with clients, it was... A couple things we would always say to the clients um, that we worked with was everybody is giving. It's like 98, 99% of people give to charity or maybe it's, it's high 90s usually. Um, not everybody's giving well. And the but my favorite example of not everybody giving well was when we were doing this, Bill, the, the Ice Bucket Challenge had just become a thing. If you all think back to your memories, um, the Ice Bucket Challenge, it was for ALS. Dump bucket water, ice water on yourself, remember this, and everybody had to tag three friends. And all of our older school, usually people are giving at the end of their life. So you had older families and generational wealth, and they were asking, and they would ask Bill and myself, they'd say, well, how do we do the ice bucket challenge for our org? Right, like how how do we get one of those? Um, and that was like the extent of like social media or like viral activism in the in the philanthropy space. It's usually so far behind. Has COVID helped accelerate some tech innovation? Like, have you are we still kind of in this old school mentality, and you have to take you know trailblazers like Amanda to ever get anything going?
2: I think it has accelerated a bit, and, and I think that folks have time now to you know because we're home, you know, or 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 if we're working, we're working, and then we're back home. We have more focus time, it seems, and whether it's Greta Thunberg or whether it's Amanda or, or other leaders, international, local. I think there's there's much more attention and focus, and, and I think that people are are active. I mean, heck, you know, in my family, you know, my my, my um, philanthropic oriented, you know, daughter is very much um, when she has her screen time, you know, she's not just watching stuff on just regular stuff, she's actually reading and seeing what Amanda's doing, what other folks are doing, and so are her friends. And they're communicating with each other. And I I think those rising generations are definitely utilizing it and communicating more. And I think it's just, you know, particularly, because it was such a unique time for this to happen, uh, you know, after and during, you know, the, the Black Lives Matters protests. Um, and other protests that, that have sprung, I, I think it's just that that point of confluence of everything coming together has really created a, a, a time where folks, not just the rising generation, but other folks are really looking to social media. And I think a number of organizations that are making change are really getting their message out and doing a great job with that.
3: It. It's one of the things I missed because I was not I was not in the philanthropic advisor role when both of these things happened, both the Black Lives Matter movement mm-hmm. and then obviously coronavirus like both of these things are massive social crises what has the response been in your in your world to that and both on the cutting edge side amanda and then I, i'm actually curious on like some of the older wealthier folks too but amanda maybe thoughts on like how you've guys started in, like innovating or responding to both of those movements
1: the first wave at least for social movements especially in the 21st century is getting the news out right? So look at what's happening. Look at our people being killed, right? And then the second is to have existing structures that are there that are accessible to create policy change. So, you know, the first question is like, okay, cover the story. The second question is what are we going to do about that story, right? Um, And I think that the Black Lives Matter activists have an incredible, clear and clarion call to action, right? They had very clear ideas about what it is that they wanted to see done and i think that is undoubtedly one of the reasons why they were so successful
2: i agree and and whether it's a someone who can be out there and protest i mean you you immediately see what's happening um, what's happening during the protest, um, the violence that but could be happening at times. I, I think that folks capture that and share that. And so mm-hmm. you're able to have immediate response to police reactions or overreactions in, in many cases. I also think that it inspires folks. I mean, there's a, a, a dear friend of ours who created this amazing, um, during the protest, An amazing uh, music video, you know, from that, and it it was a very real, very visceral piece of art. And and I think being able to build on this, very to to Amanda's point, this very clear call, this clarion call, where you can build on this and respond it in different ways, it continues the momentum to really help. Um, enhance and, and deepen and, and even broaden the message where right. everybody feels like they can be involved and everybody actually feels like they could make a change versus just writing a check or giving a, a couple bucks. You actually are actively part of a movement, which is very, very different.
4: that's expressvpncom com slash Yang. Go to expressvpn.com slash Yang to learn more.
3: The largest charities in the world right now are banks. Um, essentially, there's something called um, a donor advised fund where you can, instead of giving to a charity now, you can give to or give to, let's say you want to give the Red Cross. Instead of giving the Red Cross now, you put it to Fidelity Charitable, which has its own 501c3. You get your tax deduction. You can invest that money and put it in the stock market. It grows. It grows tax-free and then you go into Fidelity, go on their online portal and give to the Red Cross or give every charity you want. Which theoretically is amazing because you're going to give more over time and you're going to do this. But the the byproduct of this is that we have a society where <laughs> <laughs> the largest, if you Google right now, the largest Jerries in the world, you're going to get four or five banks. Um, and I'm curious for both of you how that impacts, like, the donors or that the field you work in.
1: Well, I think that philanthropy in general, at least my experience, has been very risk averse. Uh, and uh, look, it makes sense if you're you know driven by being risk averse because you want to you know make sure that you're advising someone right, to make a good donation, then if you're playing it safe, it's really, really hard to get investments into innovative solutions. So, you know, when it's driven by, again, uh, being risk averse and a culture that uh, is focused on less on innovative solutions, more on like, how can I make my clients happy? then no, it's it's hard it's just hard to, to invest in innovative things.
2: I mean if you look at how a lot of philanthropy dollars are even invested um, that follows Amanda's you know comment about how just their philanthropy traditionally has been very conservative um, you know I, I'd, I'd like to you know believe that 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 has shifted some and will continue to shift more. I think the bulk is is still pretty pretty traditional which means pretty conservative. And I think, you know, as, as more and more folks, particularly times like now, really, are, are, I'd like to think are starting or should be thinking more of, well, gosh, what, you know, is our giving, you know, can this be the seed corn for future change? Can we put something in now? Can we take a, a big bet, a big risk here? And, and really, there's an organization that I like, that I know that we've vetted, that we've, we've treated as, we have an and d budget for a giving. So we are going to do some evaluation. We're going to work closely with them. And let's take a big bet on this. You know, I mean, for folks who invested in in Zoom or, or Bitcoin or Tesla, let, let's find an organization that, that does great work and let's take great risk. And maybe those, this, you know, company cause for change will have a similar rate of return of three, four, five hundred percent. But there's a component of risk. And mm-hmm. and I think that more folks are maybe seeing that as, as we are in, you know, where we are now with COVID-19. Um, and and hopefully we see more change there. I'm hopeful, uh, you know, we're cautiously optimistic. We're, there yeah. are folks start making big bets on on amazing ideas.
3: It's so funny because the, the space I was in in the philanthropy side, there's always so much hope. Um, and then when I was in the, the politics, fourth <laughs> industrial revolution side, it was so much despair. Um, <laughs> but <it's>, but I, <laughs> I love it. And I, I think so. One of the things that I'm really really passionate about in the philanthropic space is is risk because. People don't, people take plenty of risk with their for-profit dollars all day long. Um, That's like what the stock market is. Yet when it comes to charity, we're like, hey, we don't know if that's going to work. Or it's like, hey, I can't have any negative PR in my giving or hey, like whatever the the excuse is. And it's, the problem is, the problem is the way this is set up, that the people who need to take risk are wealthy people people who can give back that's it's like the individual donors because governments can't take risk because then elected mm-hmm. officials get crushed businesses can't take that risk on philanthropic stuff because they have to hit their bottom line they're already taking enough risk otherwise so it literally is on families to fail and try if you have a hundred thousand for wealthiest folks to put that and that's where I think a lot of innovation needs to come from I mean I'm, I'm curious tell us more I, I, we've kind of skipped over and it's like Maybe I buried the lead a bit. So tell us more about some of the amazing stuff you're doing. And I'll give the context of wh- how we got connected is not just to Bill, but you were connected with Evelyn with a lot of your work on the Survivor's Bill of Rights, which I, I can't tell you how amazing it is because it's one thing to feel good and talk a good game and say the right things. That is important, words matter, but so do action. So so for you to take something that a lot of people are very passionate about and turn it into legitimate policy, um, frankly, bipartisan policy in certain places, um game changing and rare i'm so i'm sorry i'm fanboying but tell me more please
1: <laughs> no, i'm so thank you thank you so much for saying that because i think that look the field of uh nonprofit industry of activism in general of course there are these thought leaders right who are very important yes raising awareness very very important how do we translate these ideas into action and in order to do so how do we do it in a way where we don't step on landmines uh, that actually hold us back? Right? There is certainly, especially when you engage in uh, legal change, right? like writing legislation, you have to work with people. Um, and let me just tell you, first of all, I'm a super nerd. So my background's in astrophysics. <laughs> that really informs how I operate. And also uh, with this idea of, this being larger than myself, right, and having a very clear um, finish line. Uh, So what do I mean by that? Um, When you are able to have a very clear goal, everything else kind of just falls to the wayside, right? So if the goal is to pass these civil rights, then there is a very, actually, a simple track to that. It's you must work in a bipartisan manner, you must get X amount of votes, right? Yes, of course, it's much harder than what I'm saying, but I've done it 33 times now. All of my laws have been bipartisan, and it literally makes RISE the most successful legislative reform vehicle in modern U.S. history.
3: (laughs) That's so impressive and so sad in some ways, It is so sad.
1: Actually, literally, there was this—I often don't bring up this data point because, you know, people have feelings about it. But if you look at the presidential candidates that ran— Most of them have passed zero laws, that's average, zero, zero Mm. laws. We have passed, I have passed 33. And the reason for that is, well, you know, we are centered on community, we're centered on people, and we also think strategically about how to advance these rights and how to work across the aisle. It's so sad to say that being able to exercise radical empathy and then marry that with data driven processes is innovative, but honestly, very, very few people are doing it. Well, literally no one has a track record. So um, there's that, but it's just, it's important to have a plan and that plan being driven by what it is that you're the the change that you're trying to make.
3: I know that feeling where it's, um, I had it with Suit Up, a nonprofit I started, which was small scale. But I had a lot with Andrew, where it's like, where you're you're doing something and you have a right message, and it seems very very rational to you. It was like, like, and I'm like, am I doing something wrong because this seems really really obvious and no one's saying no to me. And sometimes the reality is the only way something's going to happen, it, the only reason it didn't happen yet is because no one bothered to get up and do the work.
1: Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> tell
3: tell us, Mormon, about the work.
1: Think as if you're in like a movie about a heist, right? Like Ocean's Eleven or something. What's the first process to get like the thing, right? If you're like diamond instead of a diamond is civil rights. <laughs> you must analyze your landscape. You know, mm. you must know what the exit points are, you must know what the rules are. If you want to win a game, you have to know the rules. And then you have to know it well enough to know how to break the rules, right? So it's so important to be educated about the processes by which, I'm gonna just talk about the type of change that RISE engages in, which is creating laws, right? And centering it around the communities that are affected by it, putting them at the center. So. Um, I can't believe you know that that's innovative, but it, it really is because so much of what people feel, um, especially you know, reiterating the last presidential race, is hey, I don't feel like I have agency, right? Like I, you know, my family's going through all of these issues, but who's looking out for us? And also, why does my voice matter, right? I think that's was said in so many different ways, and. That's a real problem. If we live in a a democracy that's of the people, by the people, for the people, then the people need to feel like they have a part of this country that's working and serving them. So why does that happen? It's happened because there has been um, a considerable effort to, I know this sounds spicy, gaslight people into forgetting their constitutional right to petition the government. What do I mean by that? Our education. Most people don't know that they could write their own law. Most people don't know how a bill becomes a law. Um, And all of these fundamental things are so, so important. So that's what Rise Justice Labs does. We have a program called School of Hope. Um, And it literally teaches people the blueprint for how to pass laws.
4: This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep... that's helixsleep.com/slash yang. This is their best offer yet, and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now.
3: You are tying all this passion and, frankly, rhetoric and a lot of things the left is good at. We are very good at drawing a line in the sand, we are very good at saying you're on my team or not the team, right? But we, we are not good as Democrats, excluding the past, literally just the presidential election in 2020. We're not good at winning. We're not good at executing, mm-hmm. and like generally speaking. I'm obviously overgeneralizing. And there's a lot of things you can say about Mitch McConnell, and I have a lot of thoughts on that man. But one thing he's very good at, sadly, is winning. Oh, and yeah. he gets a lot, of, if you look at this man's track record in terms of Supreme Court justices and impeachment trials, but one, if you go down list, he wins all the time. And mm-hmm. Democrats need to start winning because we have the right ideas. We just don't have the right game plan. One of the reasons I think you're the future of philanthropy because you've taken all the rhetoric and all the passion and turned it into not just activism, but organized activism where you can rally the troops around a cause. How has that worked for you guys? And what, what sort of stuff have you actually done that, that, what have you done to help that work?
1: So activism to me is... Like straight-up voltage, right? And organizing is directed energy. And what we do is directed energy. Of course, both are necessary in building movements and creating change. And each person has their part to play in a social movement. We need the people who are protesting. We need the thought leaders. We need the people who are with the megaphones. We also need people who know the rules. Right? who knows what unanimous consent is and what redlining means, all of these things that are so important to the actual technicality of moving something through the existing body that we have, right? So in order for us to actually create the change that we want to see, one, it's so basic, but know, know what it is that you want and be informed about what it is that you want. So our first lesson, right? Um, in, in RISE, when you're accepted into the program, is to do immense research, right? It's when you, before you ever step into the office of a senator, have your bill draft ready, right? How are they supposed to know more than you? I mean, yeah, I get it. It's their job to, you know, make the policy. But also, if you want to increase your chances of success then tell them what it is that you want. Tell them why it is it's bad that they won't do this. And also help them see your perspective. Right? So that means analyzing your issue and knowing your thing before you go in. That's really critical. Um, Hoponomics is actually, again, I'm a nerd, so it really comes back from a nerdy place. Star Trek people will know this, but for me, the way that I teach people Hoponomics is to envision a 4 layered chessboard. It's literally so four layers, all stacked on each other. It's a game of chess, and each layer represents a mode of thinking. And when you move a chess piece on any of these layers, it affects the rest of the game, right? So The first layer, it goes from most concrete to most abstract. The first layer is mission and facts, what I just said know your issue. The second layer is narrative, right? How are you gonna have that emotion towards that? The third layer is coalition building, which is how do you work across the aisle, right? And the last layer is what I like to call the human condition. Um, And honestly, I actually, you know, modeled this off of um, Graham Allison's uh, theory of to deal with dictators in the cuban missile crisis wow okay yeah 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 but you know instead of dictators it's for politicians it's not you know what to think but how to think how do you strategize right and get to your finish line
3: i'll tell you this from humanity forward where andrew and i were were running an organization that was trying to get cash relief passed we did a lot of programs we did a lot of testing we did all this stuff and like the best roi it wasn't even close was we hired someone who had like very little experience doing this just to go harass our congressmen and women (laughs) and that actually got the stimulus check passed that's literally what worked um so uh, yes completely agree it's like and that's a big thing Andrew. like trying to make the like plumbing cool um which i think you're doing really well bill have you seen any other organizations like trying this like or is this so out of left field in the philanthropic game that we need to spread the word high and wide for people to start keeping up with Amanda. Like, what's like, what are you seeing there?
2: I've not seen anyone do it to the level of, of what Amanda and Rise are doing uh, at all. I mean, it, it's, I mean, a lot of folks, I mean, you have the image of Schoolhouse Rock, you know, and you got the sad Bill at the top of the hill, you know, and, and but who actually, to your point, Zach, who actually is is doing that? Who, who, I mean, I, I grew up in, in Tallahassee, Florida. And there are a ton of lawyers and a ton of lobbyists as the state capitol. And, you know, of course, I mean, how is law passed? Well, there's lobbyists involved, and they talk to the, the staff, the local representatives, the Senate. I mean, it goes through the process. You know, I mean, that that's that's it. I mean, a lot of folks don't really know, and, and this sounds so trite, but I, I can't think of another phrase. But what Amanda and her team are doing to I me, mean, they're really democratizing democracy. It's making it so real and, and they're helping you do it and they are helping you along the way. You have to do the work, but they're there to really help shape you do that. So Zach, I'm not, I'm, I'm sure there are, and Amanda I'm sure has additional insight into this, but this model I think is incredibly successful. It's not just, which, which it's, it's, you know, there's proof and concept, you know, uh, building on Amanda and, and the work that she's done. Um, to to right so many wrongs and and then other folks have their own passion interest area too, whether they live in Tallahassee or Two Egg, Florida or wherever they live they can make this change and they can make it happen and and being able to have that structure where it's just not this kind of amorphous piece, it really is, I I truly believe this, you really are democratizing democracy and that's how you make real change
3: Besides money, um, what's the biggest obstacle to getting this done, getting this scaled, getting this um, more streamlined, things like that?
1: Ego. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, look, uh, you said it earlier. How do we make plumbing cool? There's a difference between feeling good and doing good. And there is a whole group of people who you know, are engaged in activism. Maybe they were well-intentioned when they started, right? But uh, along the way, I've been more concerned about fame, and I, I think it's so, so important for everyone, but also for philanthropists to understand that change, sustainable change needs to be not only flashy moments, right, zeitgeist moments, but also the moments in between right? And that doesn't look so flashy and glamorous all the time. So, you know, investing in things like structural education, you know, the the RISE teaches these, you know, these tools, these rules, these parliamentary procedures. It's (laughs) so boring, but it's so important. It's so important. It has played a huge function into how educated our country has been about our processes, right? Um, And, to get back to ego, look, I, I think that everyone should have a level of, of self-esteem, of course. Um, what I'm talking about, though, is how do we relate ourselves to our community? And how do we ask the question, you know, what what do I care about? And also, what can I do for my community? Right. And when we start asking those questions and seeing ourselves not only isolated but also living in an ecosystem, as we clearly have seen in COVID. Right? Again, we are all interconnected here. I think that's when change can can start to have that empathy.
3: So we used to preach this. We use Bill and I. We used to preach this all day. So it's one of the biggest problems in philanthropy is that everybody wants to start their own thing. <laughs> yeah. And and it, and it makes sense because let's most people if you're talking about we're not talking about excessive wealth but like you retire you've made up a little bit of a nest egg you're looking ideally to give back or your legacy right and you're passionate about bone marrow cancer you're passionate about education whatever it is you want to start that thing cuz it's your legacy but the problem is the world doesn't need that um, because nonprofits don't fail most startups for profits fail 95% fail in the first 2 years according to wall street journal but it's like and bill and i we always try to look up these numbers they don't really get reported but the irs basically has like less than 10% of nonprofits fail in their first 2 years and that's not cuz they're all the epitome of perf- perfect capitalism or perfect nonprofit world. It's because they just exist on in perpetuity and suck resources from each other. And the biggest piece is probably ego. Bill, you see this all day long partnership is the key where it's like, Hey, I'm passionate about this. Here's a great innovator doing it. Let me help you. Let me hop on bill. I don't know if you have thoughts on there. If you
2: are, if people are doing it more now, I don't know what you think. In COVID and McKinsey did a report back in, uh, I think it was May of, of last of 2020. Um, that collaboration and partnership of, of folks, donors coming together to pool the resources, to engage in R&D and to accelerate their giving, to give more than they have in the past. Those are some of the traits, success traits. Um, I, I've seen a lot of that, and but I've still seen folks, I, I think before COVID really hit and, and hit hard, um, I would still see it, Zach. I mean, I would know, reflect with some CEOs, some number one CEO shared, you know, every morning I would wake up thinking about how, how am I gonna put that person out of business you know, in in my business and, and increase wallet share. How am I doing that? And and it's reflective in my organization. Uh, you know, my charity that 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 we're working. With, we don't do that. You know, we don't have that that kind of edge, that focus. I mean, it's a different kind of pace. Now, I mean, for him that was absolutely right. But there's a number of organizations out there I know that are hungry and they're lean. And I think there's you know so many organizations with Ashoka or it's you know, the Chan Zuckerberg initiative. And I mean, and there's so many gates and, and two, really so many more to, to, to relay that are supporting entrepreneurially spirited uh, folks that are making change out there too, like Amanda, you know, and, and her team and, and Rise. So I, I, I see an increase in that which is great, but I'll, I, and, and hopefully I'm seeing a little bit less of, of the former, you know, Zach of what you shared of, I've got an idea and I'm going to make another charity and, and, and it exists forever, but doesn't make change okay. or that it's designed to be in perpetuity, but it never solves the problem.
3: Oh, and look, I say this as someone who started his own thing, like everybody <laughs> starts their own thing. And, um, but one of the things I did is like, I went to New York cares, which is the large, like I ran a vault. Vo- I ran a volunteer organization that, um, did business competition, like one-day corporate volunteer events for companies um, to help kids in in the city they're in. I went to the big volunteer organization in New York City, New York Cares, and I said, hey, you guys are doing park cleanups and trash pickups and building poorly constructed houses with accountants from KPMG, and they're all bad builders, and that's not a fun event, and you're you're sending care boxes to veterans in Iraq, which is very wholesome, but there's a million organizations that do that and you are building it from scratch. You don't even know where to send the packages. Like um, I can help here. We have a great organization with infrastructure. You have a ton of corporate clients. I don't even care about the money. Like, I'm just happy to like, let's partner whatever, however you want, we'll do it. And they were like, no, thank you. Peace out. See you later. Um, That's the game. And it's like the, the analogy would be Amanda is like someone's like really passionate about what you're passionate about. And instead of plugging into your infrastructure that's already passed 33 laws, going out and trying to raise money to do their own thing, their own way. have any Has anyone tried to partner with you? Like, are there a lot of nonprofits or lobbyist firms or things like that that, that can partner with you? What have you seen?
1: <laughs> I think, um, I mean, yeah, I'm really grateful to the people who have reached out um, and in good faith. Yeah. Your story really resonates because when I started RISE, I literally went to existing places and I was like, hi, I want to be an astronaut. Like, I just want my civil rights. And um, can you help me? (laughs) Uh, And we got turned away. Like, that's how RISE started because people were like, look, cool. I sympathize, but also... And, like, it came from a a realistic place. I don't have a bandwidth for this now. Or, like, you know, we're fighting for our own things. We can't help you for this. And then we succeeded. Then we got people coming out. Those same very people that I went to. And they said, hey, wait a second. Why are you on our turf? Literally. Quote. Turf. And, um, well, they weren't so nice about saying that. So that's (laughs) actually a little watered down. But it was unbelievable. (laughs) we were like, "Uh, you know, yes, we did. Here's the email. Um, But... Yeah, I, I, look, there are every single industry, nonprofit, any, any single type of community always has turf and issues like, like that. But as long as I think you are smart about how you do it and you're actually addressing a need and that need isn't like to satisfy your own ego, but rather like people are really calling for it, right? It's coming from the community. Who are you serving? And exactly what kind of change are you trying to create? Like, what are your metrics? how are you holding yourself accountable every single week our team no matter where you are from calls in. we call it a leadership call and we literally report on our metrics right so this year we've introduced this amount of bills that has passed this committee and we have served how many people right and every single campaigner reports in from their state from their country the campaign stats um and it's not only because like we're obsessed with collecting data if you make a difference in alaska it will inspire people in alabama to feel a little less alone and that's really community is really really important especially when you're engaged in really hard work that can be traumatic and um having a very clear call to action having metrics having bite sizable goals so you can see a return on investment of your energy and having a clear finish line all of these things help create momentum not only for the movement but for yourself too
2: I love how that that really kind of does away with the turf, hopefully anyway, you know, continues to do away with some of those turf issues.
1: No, absolutely. And thank you for saying that. One of the most heartwarming things have been watching, at least in this past Accelerator cohort, how people have worked with each other across issues. There's a lot of cross-pollination, right? So, for instance, the most common, you know, committee assignment is judiciary if you're working on civil rights issues. It's the same senators you're going to be testifying in front of, right? And so – Um, you don't have to like recreate the wheel every single time. You can absolutely teach each other, you know, how to testify. And, and we've seen that. Um, and I think that also that's where innovation comes in, right? When we're able to collaborate Mm -hmm. instead of, you know, this is my part of the pie, you stay in yours.
3: So to me, you study the history of philanthropy and the history of giving. Um, it's back. It's it's human nature to to give back in, in in many ways. And and really, and I said this in the beginning episode, philanthropy was essentially just like gap. Essentially, filling the gap between the problems government couldn't solve and the problems that businesses were either creating or just the or didn't touch either. Right. So it fell between these two. The future of philanthropy seems like instead of that being a gap, it's almost like with government is failing. Philanthropy is not just filling the gap, but it's starting to replace or in, in, impact or accelerate government work more so than I've ever seen. And it's even probably you could probably make the argument for the business side too, in terms of it's making companies be more responsible. Like I'm curious, you guys thoughts? Where is the philanthropic space going?
1: There's a quote. Probably not going to get it right, but essentially uh, it, it says the brightest minds of our generation are helping tech companies figure out how people can click on ads instead of solving the world's most pressing problems. We need bright minds to go into the nonprofit space, to go into public service. And right now, this industry, one, is not rewarding risk, right? So it doesn't reward reward innovation. And so when young talent graduate out, You know, they're like, oh, where can I put my talents? Where will my talents be rewarded? And they don't see that within the nonprofit space. Um, And then on top of that, there are so many people who can't access the space because it is so underpaid. Right. So especially public service um, or just nonprofit in general. And people have Uh, A lot of college debt to worry about. People have lives to live. Right. And so so many of my peers, at least I saw graduate Harvard and were like, you know what, like I care about X, Y, Z issues, but I'm going to go into X, Y, Z, you know, fields that maybe I don't really want to, but I want to gather up, you know, this kind of security belt before I can jump into something else. Right. But when you do that, essentially you're saying, okay, I'm going to devote my talent not into saving the world at this moment, even though I have the talent and I have ideas, but I'm going to do it for something else. So <laughs> um, we're losing. We're losing generations of talent that are so, so needed because the world is literally like on fire. <laughs> um, and I think philanthropy can absolutely help with creating these spaces um I, you know you said it earlier zach when you're like you know a lot of people are willing to take risks for profit um and i think that absolutely should be a new way a new lens um, of giving into philanthropy
3: dan palata has a fast fascinating ted talk on this it's called uncharitable if you guys want to google that maybe i'll put the link in but and bill we've had to speak but i know you have a ton of thoughts on this bill but basically how broken one like a lot of people think you get the social value of working at a charity, but the reality is, if you're working for Apple making the health app or what, like whatever tech company, you're you're getting some social value working there too. In fact, you can make more money and donate to nonprofits you like too, and that feels great. So, Bill, um, thoughts on the future of philanthropy, and frankly, how this like the compensation piece or the incentive
2: piece is broken. What do you think? I I think you and Amanda, I mean, are are, are spot on on this thought. And Dan um, really has created a a movement. And charitable is a great, a great why. I think it's one of the most watched, you know, Ted Talks ever. One of the most watched Ted's ever, yeah. Yeah. It's very powerful. And And I think so because it strikes a chord. I mean, if, you know, if you're that Apple, you know, young Apple, just got your MBA and you're doing really well and you donate a quarter of your salary, you know, and you pick a charity, most likely you are. Top donor to that organization, or could be. Put your name on the, the building, building after you. Get name of the, all right? Exactly. They'll get your name of the building. But what they don't have is someone who, um, with the same skills and talents that that you have, coming out of the MBA program and applying it for change, because there's this long-standing and I, and Dan obviously puts this much better than, than I ever could. Um, so I'm not gonna go there. But it's just the fact that you know the way that we treat. Um, how organizations, how it's not right, how how we as a society believe it's not right to pay in the nonprofit space because that for some reason that's a sacred area that you have to um, live in a kind of a monk like existence and martyrdom. And not, and it's it's martyrdom. Martyrdom. Yeah, right. It, the purity of martyrdom, which 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 I think is such a. a sad falsehood that really holds a lot of our organizations back I and mean, if you yeah. are a top graduate and have just killed it you know through school you've started some businesses and you've got a great idea well and you're impacting millions of lives why why can't you be paid to do that yeah. you know and why can't we avoid the, the the martyrdom trap that we really harken back to our, our you know pilgrim roots uh, you know of of Denying any any kind of anything that's positive or, or approachable out of this. I mean, it's almost religious to an extent. So, I don't. I'd love to see that change. Obviously, and I think a number of people would. And, and I th- you know maybe there is some change there with, with some organizations that are quasi philanthropic, but they're really not. I and mean, whether it's you know the Chan Zuckerberg initiatives or or other groups coming together that are hiring change makers and are paying them. You know, mm-hmm. um, and, and there's some other orgs that that are actually you know similarly situated that are not created as charities, but are created as different types of organizations that can pay and and absolutely can control that and can hire top folks. Uh-huh. So so maybe that's changing in a bit. I'd love to see more of that because you do want to attract top minds. And, and I think rising generations, whether it's as young as as, as our 10-year-old or, or someone who's 20 or, or 15 or 25 or 30, this is such a driving factor of folks who want to work that are in the, that age range. They want to be able to give back. Their, their idea of of making a salary is important to them, but I think an idea of actually making real change is important too. So I'd love to be able to see more more organizations embrace embrace that, that change. Well, if they're young, they've got a lot of debt too.
1: Exactly. Who can afford to be a martyr, right? So uh, literally, it's people who have the means to get other forms of income that can supplement, right, these jobs. So when you have that specific demographic then being the only ones who can afford this kind of martyrdom, then you really limit your pool of innovative ideas of different perspectives. And that's why we are where we are right now.
3: It takes a certain amount of privilege to be able to start a nonprofit from scratch and innovate in the social space. Cause there's no, there's some accolades, there's no real money, which in, I don't mean money like let's get rich, but there's no real financial security, which is a lot of what we all want, right? Um, And what happens to your point is that the people innovating here come from privilege and they end up reflecting a wealthier component and usually more white, more male, or or, I guess the nonprofit field has a a good representation of women too, but it ends up reflecting a certain level of privilege. And the people that are probably. That these organizations are literally serving to help, I imagine their voices are not truly reflected. They just have the martyrs fighting from them, which have their own lens, self included. What excites you about how where philanthropy is going, right? Like what? Like there's a lot of despair, and I could go all day on it. But what what gives you hope?
1: I'm so hopeful. I I, I really I have to be <laughs> you know, really yeah. engaged in this work. It's a little pathological optimism here, but. No, I I really am because we are seeing change happen and we're seeing it in a pace that has, you know, never been this quick before. And I I think that I think President Obama has said this consistently, you know, if you were to choose a moment in history where you want to be alive, wouldn't you want to be alive now? Right. Um, And I think that's because we are on the cutting edge of philanthropy, of how we think as a society and how we relate to one another and how we position ourselves and our power to create change within this world so I'm very very hopeful
2: I I am also pathologically optimistic you know I share Amanda's feelings um, very much so about that I mean when I look out and you know and I, and I look at you know this amazing picture of uh, amplifier that amplifier art worked closely with Shepard ferry um, who Jeff Ferry you yeah. know, did this he created this amazing piece of art, you know, yeah. featuring, uh, that's man. the
3: guy who created the, designed the Obama hope poster and a number of other street art, um, what's called innovations or iconic images. Go ahead, Bill, sorry.
2: No, no, it's okay. Yeah, the the Obey crew, I mean, and just, just Obey, Shepard, yeah, Obey,
3: Andre the Giant, right?
2: Yep, and, and, and what he's done and how he gives back and how he partnered with yeah. Amplifier Art, which is a tremendous organization that really gets that art out there and recognizes folks like Amanda and, and other rising visionaries and entrepreneurs and really through Shep and, and other artists create this amazing art. But I remember, you know, I um, mean, Keeping it with the family, you know, maybe a little bit ago, um, Reno Women's March, and we had fallen in love with this work of art and Amplifier's piece. And just it was the uh, uh, Rise and Rewrite the Law, I, I think, was the was the, the line on the poster of referring to Amanda mm-hmm. and the work that Rise is doing. And we were able to, to for free, because this is Amplifier's mission, uh, which they get into schools, by the way. I mean, it's a tremendous way to learn about it. Um, indigenous uh, thought leaders, other thought leaders, thought leaders of color, different, it, it's extraordinary. Um, but, but, you know, our daughter loved it. And so we were <laughs> able to have it printed and all, and they marched and held it up and, and through technology, somebody posted it up to Amanda who connected and, and then they connected and then her friends connected. And I, I think for, and I, and I share that story, that optimism is, you know, and this is, Two years ago, um, just how technology, if used and leveraged and harnessed, really harnessed the passion and put that, you know, 40 chessboard that that Amanda has, put that organization that hard work into it. I think that's why I'm really excited because we don't know what's happening next. But just looking at that that simple line of someone could just see this and make a difference and, and put a picture mm-hmm. and then and get involved and be part of that. I, I think that's an example of how a very simple example of, of how change can happen. And and can draw people to causes and get them to learn more, to do the work. And I think that's something we've never really had before. And I think in the past year and a half, two years with Black Lives Matter and then with COVID-19 has really, um, you know, lack of a better word, amplified that. And and I think if if folks are sent in the right direction and get the real real science and real news and real process and work with with someone like RISE, U.S. and organizations like, like Amanda's, then they can actually make real change happen, which, which I think that right. we've not seen in the past before. And, that, and that's why I'm pathologically, hopefully optimistic.
3: No, I love it. And that's where, yeah, to your point, Bill, your, your daughter is going to grow up with this around her and many kids around the country is going to grow up not as this, oh, that philanthropy do-good stuff is part of their DNA in some ways, um, in many ways. You mentioned President Obama, Amanda, and I was um, talking about this like randomly today, but um, his, I think it's his second book, um, is called the audacity of hope. And I've always just like let rolled off the tongue like Audacity of Hope. But I've like thought about that meaning is like the audacity of having hope, like the willingness to take a bold risk, like to be so bold as to have hope. And actually, Audacity, if you really dive into the definition, is like disrespectful. It's like it like you know, I can't believe you have that. And frankly, in this time, which is which is dark this is some of the darker times we've ever been in. We're all stuck inside the world's on fire, we don't know what to do, we're losing our minds. Um, I am grateful for the two of you um, for having the audacity to have hope to give us hope. And frankly, from the bottom of my heart, um, to be frankly, a bit of a martyr here. Um, like I know Bill, from where we were, like you turned down plenty of opportunities to go into just the pure for profit side of of Wall Street. And Amanda, I'm now convinced you could probably do anything, including going to space. Um, but instead, you're you're passing laws that no one has the guts to pass. So um, from the bottom of my heart, thank you. Um, Amanda, where can we learn more about Rise and, and some of your work you're doing?
1: Yeah, people can go to RiseNow.us slash donate. Uh, But no, if you actually have an idea, right, that you want to see turn into law and you're a part of that community um, that you're seeking to fight for, please, please check out our work. Um, And even if you don't make it into the cohort, uh, we post all our lectures um, publicly. Uh, So we want people to understand how to access democracy. Look, to be very honest with you, I want to be able to you know, write down this knowledge and pass it on. I'm not trying to make a buck because I want to go to space. So um, (laughs) come learn, do it yourself, uh, and I'll see you on Mars.
3: I love it. My takeaway here is the future of philanthropy is, is is probably philanthropy doing everything it can to solve what the government's not doing, even if that means doing the government's job for it. Um, but I, what I wanna do, and the future of philanthropy is probably in our kids in terms of how they're growing up around this. What I want to do, and I'll probably do, is 10 years from now, I'm gonna invite you both back. We're gonna have this conversation all over again. Yank Speaks will be at 10 million downloads a second or whatever the heck. It'll be an international media behemoth. Um, and we'll bring you back on to see if we're right or wrong. But from the bottom of my heart, thank you, thank you. The future of giving. Bill and Amanda, you guys are amazing. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks, y'all.
2: Bye, Zach. Bye, Amanda.